It may be invisible to some or ever present to others, but trauma entangles us all. Welcome to Traumatize, brought to you by Network for Victim Recovery of DC. Traumatize is a podcast that creates space and conversations to untangle the societal knots that keep us from addressing trauma after crime. For you, we want this podcast to be an experience, one where you leave understanding how you can be a crossing point to minimize the deeply painful and costly consequences of trauma, no matter who you are. Welcome to Traumatize, Untangling Societal Harm and Healing After Crime. I am Bridget Stumpf, the co-founder and executive director at Network for Victim Recovery of DC. And with me is my co-host. Hi, y'all. I'm Lindsay Silverberg. I'm the head of services at the Network for Victim Recovery of DC. And in this first episode, we are going to be unpacking the shared language of trauma, really the lack thereof. And you will learn a little bit about your co-host, what to expect from us as you join us in this journey through the ways in which trauma is a thread in connecting us all in the human experience. And I think a great starting place for that is to have us define what is trauma. So Bridget, can you tell us what is the actual definition of trauma? Yeah, it's a great question. And we talk about this a lot in our work, but what makes trauma as a concept somewhat challenging is that there isn't this baseline black and white definition of what is a trauma exposure. What we do know is that it can be acute, right? It can be a random, unexpected, one-time exposure of trauma. It can also be chronic. We see this a lot in our work, but we also see it show up chronically in military veterans, folks that have served in multiple forms of combat and had chronic trauma exposure. And we also know that trauma can be a set of circumstances that you're exposed to. That can be systems and structures of oppression and racism where one has to navigate their daily life being exposed to those oppressions. And that in itself can cause not only trauma in the moment, but also the fear of trauma in the future. We also know that it can be generational. It can be, you know, intergenerational and impact families and even the, I'm not, I'm not a scientist. I have science envy, but I'm going to use the wrong word here, but our sort of biology and the evolution of our biology throughout our family history. But what's really important and how we want to orient folks in this conversation about what trauma is, is really helping you to understand what it's not. Trauma is not defined by an event. It's actually defined by the person who experiences that event. And what makes that really challenging is that we all, based on our lived experiences, our identities, our lenses, we have developed a baseline of what we think trauma exposure is based on our view of the world, but it's unique to every unique and individual person who has trauma exposure, which is really just too much stress, too fast. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit later on what is really the difference between stress and trauma, but I'm kind of laser focused right now, Lindsay, on individuals and how trauma exposure shows up for individuals in their lives. I would love for you to talk a little bit from your own perspective. What does it look like to have shared trauma connections or communities who've had shared trauma exposures? Yeah, I think that's a that's a great point. And as Bridget said, trauma is experiencing something. It's too much, too fast without the ability to process that information. And we can all probably think about 
experiences, national events that have happened that have been traumatic experiences for us as a whole, whether we were actually there and witnessed it or watched it on television. And one one thing that always comes to mind for me is that I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and was in high school when 9-11 happened. And I have very, very clear memories of helicopters flying over my high school on the day that 9-11 happened. It was also happening. It happened to be my picture day. So we have a, a picture to memorialize that day forever. But the way in which that trauma is imprinted in my brain, right, is something that I'll never be able to forget because of the way that trauma memories are stored. But we think about 9-11, also for folks who are from the Washington, D.C. area, the D.C. sniper, lots of events, right? The folks that are experiencing war right now in Ukraine, those are all shared traumas that, while it might be a little bit different, the triggers might be a little bit different depending on what a person saw or experienced that day. It is a shared community trauma. Yeah. And what's really interesting about trauma, it's one of like the great paradox of my life, my, my personal life, is how I often find that our hardest, most tragic moments, whether it's individually or as a community, are often the most beautiful, where we see humans show up in our greatest capacity. They're very bonding, right? When we think about camaraderie that results from events like 9-11, they can be both helpful and harmful, depending on how people respond. For me, it was um, my kind of generational first awareness to to larger trauma exposure as a group was Columbine. In a class I teach, we talk and we look at how what was really unique about that experience was it was the first time, particularly for for high school students and younger, we were exposed to real-time trauma that was happening because media now had access to capture those events as they were unfolding. We saw a complete shift in, in our ability to access the news, right, or worldly events. That speaking to folks that might be listening from younger generations, that sound, that's kind of hard to believe. But I do think part of what we want to unpack in this conversation is that vicarious exposure, right? Those reporters showing up that are witnessing and experiencing, whether it's war, whether it's mass casualties, what are the consequences of not only the individuals experiencing directly trauma, but witnessing and being exposed um, to those individual trauma events? Yeah, and you bring up such a good point that makes me think about for folks who have grown up in a world where the access to news and constant information is daily. And, you know, what they're seeing, what they're experiencing is sort of a barrage of trauma sometimes and how that might impact them differently than some of these events that you and I are talking about um, that were very distinct in the experience because of the access to information at that time. And so we can dive into that more as we get into further episodes. Yeah, I love that. And and one thing that really stood out to me to just go back for a second, you talked about your visual um, memories, right? We we know now through neuroscience, thanks to other great researchers like Rebecca Campbell and others, that the way that we both recall, recall and access trauma memories is different than if I were to be like, Lindsay, what were you wearing last Thursday? That's our, you probably have no idea. I mean, it's probably the same thing I've been wearing for the last two years of the pandemic, but (laughs) hopefully some with some of our logo and and garb. Exactly. Um, But, but I bet you can tell me what you wore for your picture day. I know exactly what I wore for my picture day. I had on, I'm about to age myself. I had on a puka shell necklace and a purple shirt. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really like starting to understand the nuance of 
how trauma changes us. It changes not only how our brains work and remember those moments and prepare for future moments similar to those, those events, um, but it changes the way we view the world. And what, what Lindsay and I both know, in addition that we really like data and research and uh, learning, right, and, and kind of a growth approach to this conversation, we also know that there is so much evolving research on this particular issue out there and some really great resources. And we hope to just be one of many that already exist. And we are actually, for our listeners, going to be talking about opportunities to invite you all in, um, include you in this conversation in ways that you can engage with the podcast by sharing your own experiences and even your expertise through a five-minute lightning round that we'll invite folks to be a part of as we move into future episodes. But what do we bring to this conversation, Lindsay? You know, I really want to give folks a way um, to understand why are we a part of this dialogue? And so I'll ask you, who are you, Lindsay Silverberg? And why are you here in this room with me right now? Yeah, I think that is a great question. So I have been doing this work. And what I mean by this work is that Bridget and I work directly with victims of crime or people who've been harmed by crime in Washington, D.C. Um, I've been doing this work for just over a decade. It's amazing how fast that goes. But I started uh, when I was at the University of Maryland and I worked um, as a peer advocate to help survivors of sexual violence. It was a very enlightening experience. Uh, it was the first time I had always known about the way that crime and victimization might impact people, but it was the first time in my life where I really was like talking to people in that acute moment after it happened. And it totally shaped the way in which I looked at the world. And so from that experience, I sort of fell into making it my life's work and went to graduate school, was lucky enough to stumble upon this job here at the Network for Victim Recovery of DC, which is where Bridget and I both work. And in that role, um, I have had the privilege and honor for the last almost 10 years now of responding to the hospital in the acute moment following somebody who's experienced sexual violence. I've probably seen over 500 medical forensic exams where um, physical evidence is recovered and have had that knowledge and experience of being there, sitting with and walking with survivors, both in the acute moment and then in all of the long-term aftermath that sort of follows that. So that's a very brief on who I am and the experience that I bring to the table. And so, Bridget, why don't you tell us why you are here? I would love to do that, and I'm excited to share. I just have to put a fine point on something that is really unique to your vantage point, Lindsay, that I'm not sure folks coming into this conversation that don't have the shared background as you might not fully appreciate, but it's actually very unusual to have advocacy programs and communities where the advocate that responds in the acute moment at the hospital while someone is accessing really acute medical forensic care, it's really unusual to have the advocate continue to work with that individual as their needs and their understanding of, of what is best and what is safest for them evolves, right, outside of the acute moment. And so to have the opportunity to witness the evolution of trauma really gives you this unique perspective that I'm hoping people will be able to appreciate as you help guide them uh, through that thread of where we're all connected through trauma exposure. And that's one, one particular 
uh, type of way that we've seen it, but um, that evolution of trauma and how it evolves and changes over time is really important to to highlight for folks. Yeah. And just for context. So when I started this job, I worked with a survivor probably the second or third day that I was on call. And I continued to work with that survivor from, I think it was hours after she had experienced a sexual assault for about four years afterwards um, through the criminal legal system, entering into therapy, all of the sort of other needs that popped up. And I have to say the thing that we talk about with trauma, right, is that it can be very isolating when you're thinking about it as an individual experience, but it's so beautiful to see how resilient folks are and getting the privilege of seeing somebody from that acute moment and what happens after and how they're able to build resiliency and lead these lives. And while it changes them, right, it really is fascinating to be a part of that journey with them. Wow. I got like little goosebumps because I'm thinking about the paradox, right, which is really deep painful moments often do um, show us uh, some of the most beautiful, resilient ways that humans um, have evolved and and learned to survive really, really awful, deeply traumatic experiences. So that really touched me that you said that, (laughs) Lynn. So I'm I'm going to answer your question now, which was about me. And um, I'm like, how much time do we have? Um, So why am I here? This little podcast has been a dream of ours now for a few years. And I think for me, Lindsay, and bringing you um, was really critical, right? To have how many times have you and I had conversations just like this in our day to day work, right? Whether it's talking about this, you know, 80 year old woman who disclosed to me at Jiffy Lube when she found out what I did for a job that she was sexually assaulted in her 20s or a random person who asks you about your work and tells you for the first time, you know, that they've never shared this with anyone. I started to really, through the 10 years, this will be launching right at our 10-year anniversary, as Lindsay mentioned. I started to see that there's this deep way that we feel uh, seen, heard, understood, connected when we've had these painful experiences that all of a sudden, and we actually, we, we have a former client who said this so much more beautifully than I than I can, but she described hearing someone else, another survivor say out loud what she thought only she had felt and just like the power to all of a sudden feeling like you're understood. And so as you and I have navigated conversations, it's become really deeply important to me that in addition to the empowerment services we offer directly to folks, the education, um, the systems transformation work that we're focused on and really making sure that our response systems to harm from violence are actually adequate to meet the diverse needs, right, that survivors have, whether that's um, investments, policies, uh, restorative justice options beyond kind of the traditional response to harm from violence. It's become very important to me that we have a truthful conversation about how we are all connected through this common thread of trauma exposure, however it's presented. And and for me, let's see, reflecting back, I I think the key takeaway about why I'm here is trauma education has made me a better leader, I hope, as you experience me in that capacity. Yes. And a better lawyer. Full disclosure, I'm a nice lawyer, but I'm a I'm sort of like a retired lawyer, retired journalist now wearing my executive director hat. But I've had the privilege of witnessing deep moments of pain as folks have navigated the criminal legal system, other legal systems. And um, as a reporter, right, experienced people who are being taken advantage of by, by systems and structures and not having real power to advocate for what they deserved and their needs. And that kind of 
led me into a career where I wanted to better understand what these barriers were um, for folks trying to seek support, justice, you know, things that were important values for them. And so I um, identified really early in my, my legal career, I was working with young survivors of trauma, um, many of them sexual assault survivors, uh, surviving family members of homicide, intimate partner violence, helping them navigate these systems, again, that were not necessarily dressed. They weren't designed to make uh, people feel like their trauma and the ongoing evolution of their trauma and those needs were being met, right? That's not how legal systems were designed. We'll kind of jump into that in a specific conversation. But I thought, gosh, maybe if police had more tools and if we could equip them as often, you know, fire EMS police are the first responders when someone is exposed to harm through violence or crime. Maybe if we equip them to better understand how to have those hard conversations, maybe my clients, maybe those that I was intersecting with would be better set up to have more positive experiences. This was a running theory I had as like a baby lawyer. And so I set out in the state um, right next to us in Maryland Um, to go through uh, the certification process that police officers go through. And that's typically to train folks on things like liability, use of force, um, firearms. I was always in there with like um, folks that were going through firearms instruction training, which was interesting. And I became a certified police instructor back in 2009. And what really surprised me about that process is I had a great teacher And I was the only female and only non-law enforcement officer in the entire class. Um, And shout out to my classmates who hopefully will be listening to this, have gone on to have pretty incredible careers in law enforcement um, and have been great allies of our work. But what I realized is I set out to train law enforcement about what the law said they should be doing, the rules. I was very rule oriented. And as I started to dig into the research at the time, you know, we were learning more about the neurobiology of trauma, trauma recall, memories, and... I thought, wow, what I'm really trying to train people on is trauma education. And I'm not a scientist. I'm not a psychologist. Like, I'm just the lawyer that has intersected with a lot of folks that have had this trauma exposure. And that evolved into education that we now offer to lots of different um, sectors, right? And why I'm in this room right now is that it has become really important for me as I think about the way I show up in my fullest capacity and as a leader and in the work that we do at MBRDC to make sure every sector that any trauma survivor would engage with, particularly if they were exposed to trauma related to violence or crime, that any sector they engage in is equipped to give them the most dignified and empowering experience. And so we kind of focus on some primary sectors as we started to launch this trauma education. One is the healthcare setting. Lindsay and I both have a lot to say about that. We do. Personally, that we'll go into in later episodes. Um, the opportunity there is huge. It is. And so I think the, the piece that I really want to uplift, Bridget, is the thing we so often hear from survivors who've been impacted by violence is not, it's not about the person who did it necessarily. It's not about, you know, I'm using air quotes here, like getting justice and having that person go to prison. The, when people have bad experiences, it's with the, the system actors. It's EMS. <clears throat> it's police. It's healthcare workers. Um, sometimes it's advocates. Sometimes it's advocates. Lawyers. It's often lawyers. Uh, and I think for Bridget and I, we feel so strongly that there are really easy steps that folks can take to implement best practices with trauma. And 
both for your professional and your personal life. And what a big difference that would have in so many areas of our lives if people just treated each other with an understanding of how trauma impacts them or how people might show up who are trauma affected. That's such a good point because unfortunately in society, we are conditioned to create distance between ourselves and trauma exposure for a couple of reasons. It's viewed kind of tied closely to the concept of vulnerability, trauma exposure and acknowledging and owning it for lots of different intersecting reasons is often viewed as a weakness. And so we, we want to create distance to who experiences it and that can't be us, right? Which, which is challenging because then we fail to have really thoughtful, truthful conversations about what are the long-term, far-reaching consequences of unaddressed trauma. Which are many. Many. And I mean that ripple effect of like single mom experiences trauma, can't show up fully at work, loses her job, can't show up fully at home, doesn't get access to supportive services. We all bear the burden of that cost, right? Like we all as taxpaying citizens bear the burden of that cost. The unaddressed cost is much more significant in the ripple effect of unaddressed trauma than if we were to just invest in the resources of responding or preventing, right? When we talk about prevention. And so, you know, other sectors that we hope to unpack a little bit, certainly there's the legal system. and, and, And you're raising such a good point about this like false promise of justice. That's not like a thing. I just sort of made that up. But And that's not to say some survivors don't get a sense of justice, but what we know is that the system as it was designed does not bring equitable justice to lots of folks, regardless of how they're intersecting the legal system, whether that's being accused of causing harm, experiencing harm. And what's fascinating about the legal system is that some of the best practices that we know about um, how we respond and mitigate those consequences of trauma are to empower individuals give them choices, give them autonomy, right? They've had their power and control taken away from them. We want to give that back. So what do we do naturally? We design a system where the person who's been exposed to trauma has no power and control over the evolution of a particular matter or case, and we give that control to systems. Right. Similar for the people who've caused harm. They also have no control over the system. That's exactly right. And so we're big believers. This will get sprinkled in our conversations, I'm sure, about sort of How do we think more broadly about best ways to create an ecosystem of restoration, you know, and and transform the existing systems? And really, that goes back to how are we creating intersections in every sector that trauma survivors are are going to experience so that they're more likely not to add to that already existing harm. And so there's um, the education system. I'm really looking forward to unpacking that. As an educator, I put sort of the ESQ inside of the word educator because I think I'm an educator first and a lawyer sort of after that. But I just started doing lived experience surveys with my students. Um, Shout out to my amazing students um, who are going into the field. And it's amazing when we ask people, what is going to give you the ability to show up? What can I know and understand about you where you will be able to show up in a learning environment with your full self? create the safest, um, most trauma-informed experience. It's amazing what it does to create real learning. And so we're going to be unpacking a lot about educational systems, not just at the collegiate level, but even below that and weaving into generational trauma that we've seen uh, related to the educational system. And there are other sectors, but the key for the folks listening, I think, is even if you're sort of like my husband, you're like, oh, I don't, Trauma is not a thing I have to deal with, right? It's funny. Mm-hmm. We, we sort of have these conversations. If you hang with us, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a challenge. 
that we will talk about a sector or a system that you touch, that you're in, that you've experienced, that someone you love has experienced, and you will have this aha moment of, wow, that was actually trauma. And I didn't have the language. I didn't have the words. And so before I close out on that, Lindsay, is there anything you want to add as parting thoughts? I think you really covered it. I mean, we, as you can tell, are very passionate about trauma and the ways in which it impacts people's lives and experiences. And so what you will hear from us is, um, and what you can expect from us moving forward is real-life stories, both personally that Bridget and I have experienced, stories of survivors that we've worked with, and um, how these systems or how we hope these systems can really show up and do better on behalf of people who've experienced trauma. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to bring us full circle here, I mentioned Brene Brown and how she writes in her most recent book, Atlas of the Heart. I'm like a fangirl, so we'll probably um, bring Dr. Brown up quite a bit. But, you know, she writes in this book about wanting to establish uh, that language portal and where we find a universe of new choices and second chances. She describes this place as one where we share stories of our bravest and our most heartbreaking moments and the power that this does to create true connection. Now, I define that, Lindsay and I have talked about that true connection as a place of being fully seen, heard, a place where you feel understood, as I mentioned earlier. And isn't this the paradox of trauma, right? That trauma is this contemporaneous experience of both our bravest moments, where our survival mechanisms kick in to keep us alive in life-threatening situations. And also, we then simultaneously hold that with the heartbreaking memories that it means to have survived trauma. And those often have changed us for good. And so we both carry, after trauma exposure, both bravery and heartbreak together. And so we'll be talking more about what that looks like and how that shows up in your lives and in the folks' lives that we work with. So join us for that ride. Thank you all for joining us for our first episode of Traumatize. Join us for our next episode where we'll dive in a bit deeper on the neuroscience of trauma. How does trauma exposure impact our brain and behavior, the ways in which folks experience those impacted by trauma, and the false assumptions that are often made. This episode of Traumatize is over, but this podcast is just one of our many resources. NVRDC welcomes all survivors of crime and their supporters. So please visit us at nvrdc.org to learn more about how to access our trauma education and how to partner with us to create survivor-defined justice.